0: listener supported WNYC Studios Hey everybody this episode we're launching a three-part series and I'm really excited about it It's produced in partnership with WLRN which is the public radio station in Miami and it's part of an ongoing effort here at the Stakes to work with other public media to tell super local stories for a national audience And I'm also excited about it because in this series, we're picking up where we left off in the very first podcast I ever made. That was a project called There Goes the Neighborhood, in which we tried to understand gentrification. You could go check it out. We first covered Brooklyn and then Los Angeles, and now we're on to Miami. So hope you enjoy, and if so, I hope you'll tell somebody about it, too. Thanks. Hi, Kai, right, and these are the stakes. In this episode, Premium Elevation, LLC. Nadej, hello. Hi, Kai. So, you
1: were a dancer? I was. Once a dancer, always a dancer.
0: Nadej Green is, these days, a reporter. One of some note, she covers race and justice for Miami's public radio station, WLRN. And she's one of those reporters who is just of the place she's covering. Miami is not just some assignment for her, this is her town. And we're gonna be hanging out here with her over the next few episodes. But from the start, there's something she wants us to understand about Miami, something that came up when she started talking about her history as a dancer. When did you start dancing?
1: From as early as I can remember, I've always danced like Haitian folklore, uh, dancing in Miami at church and community events, it's like roots dancing. It's very much rooted in the culture of voodoo. So if you think of like undulation and like arms, it's rooted low into the ground. It's very earthy, Mm. a lot of bent knees, not too... In middle
0: school, she decided to to study formally. Mostly because my dad said no. (laughs) So I was like, yes, this is what I'm doing. This was serious stuff though. Nadej went on to train at the dance theater of Harlem as a teenager. And even in high school, she was studying under some of the best dancers in the world. And that's not because she went to some elite private school. It's because of where she grew up. I heard someone once describe Liberty City
1: as um as an arts desert, like, oh, we we need more art cultural spaces because you know there are neighborhoods that are art deserts. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> So Liberty City has always been a hub for the arts and culture. Uh, Robert Battle, who is the artistic director of the Alvin Ailey Dance Company, he is from Liberty City. Terrell Alvin McCraney of Moonlight fame, so? Barry Jenkins.
2: There are black people everywhere. Remember that, okay? No place you can go in the world ain't got no Black people. We was the first on this planet.
1: I mean, the arts and Black excellence has always been rooted in this community, And it's a community that has had its struggles as well.
0: But, you know, we can exist and do different things at the same time. Miami hugs the coast of South Florida at a narrow strip of urbanity wedged between the Everglades and Biscayne Bay. If you're swooping down North America's eastern coast, it's the last major metropolis you hit before you plunge into the ocean. Liberty City sits north in Miami proper. It's right next to another neighborhood, Little Haiti. And together, the pair of them are a big part of the heart of Black Miami. It's in these neighborhoods where Nadege learned to dance. And that's where she learned this other thing, too, about the relationship between her city and her community. When I was in high
1: school, I remember there was a, an incident where we, we performed. I think it was like a performing arts showcase.
0: It was kids from two of the more prestigious schools in Miami-Dade and her group from Liberty City. And there was a woman there from the school district. And she
1: stopped and she talked to the New World kids. And she was like, oh, you guys were wonderful. What a great performance. It was awesome. She stopped and she talked to like the North Dade students. And same thing. You guys were so wonderful. That was a great performance. We're so proud of you. And then when she stopped to talk to us, the kids from Liberty City, also artists, ballerinas, on point shoes and the like, she said, you guys were awesome, you were great, and, oh, my God, you guys speak so well, and look how well-behaved you are. We were just like, thank you, ma'am, and, you know, moved on about our business, got on our buses. And and on that bus ride, I remember uh, one of the teachers telling us, I hope you guys don't think that was a compliment. Notice she did not tell the other students, you guys speak so well, and you're so well-behaved. She named it for us, right? She was like, because you guys are from Liberty City, it does not matter that some of you are training at Dance Theater of Harlem or Alvin Ailey, or that you're getting scholarships to these wonderful places. The fact that we were predominantly inner city, poor Black school, the perception of us was, you know, that maybe they wouldn't know how to stand still backstage,
0: right? Which is to say, there's a very big difference between how Liberty City sees itself and how the rest of Miami understands that neighborhood. And that's important because it also begs questions about value. What's a place worth and to whom? These are really the core questions we're asking when we talk about gentrification. So we're going to spend the next three episodes hanging out with Nadej in northern Miami, where she says the equation for whose community is valuable will soon include a totally new factor. One that longtime residents have been talking about for a while, actually. They didn't know the science. They just knew and understood that when flooding happens everywhere else, it don't flood over here. And they knew that that was going to be one of the triggers for them to come take our communities. The relationship between our changing climate and America's increasingly unaffordable cities. We begin this series in Little Haiti.
2: Bonsoir.
0: Bonsoir dad's is showing me around Little Haiti. We meet some of the neighborhood's characters. We do a little shopping. See, you're not going to find Haitian
1: peanut butter at any other corner store except for in Little Haiti. I
0: didn't know there was a
1: distinction. So Haitian peanut butter is savory. It's spicy. Really?
3: Yes.
0: it is. Architecturally, Little Haiti feels like an entirely different city from what you see further south than along the coast. There are no luxury high-rises, no Art Deco hotels— The houses and buildings, they sit low, more like bungalows than mansions. And there's space. Uh, So Little Haley isn't super dense is what I'm gathering already, right? No, no it isn't, but it's about to be. You see that
1: big sign right there, Magic City? That is going to be the beginning of the density of Little Haiti. It's going
0: to be... If there is one big, visible manifestation of Miami's uncertain future, and of the anxieties and fears people in some parts of Black Miami feel about that future, this magic city development is
3: it. A strong show of opposition to a project that aims to transform a big chunk of Miami's Little Haiti neighborhood.
1: Not for sale! Little Haiti's not for sale!
0: In a neighborhood where most people earn less than $30,000 a year, this is a billion-dollar development. It's gonna bring luxury condos, high-end rentals, new shops, hotels. All of this has been bought out. All of this swath here.
1: Right, and there's more further east. You can't see it uh, where we're standing, but it goes further east, and it totals to about 17 acres. So it's one of the largest development projects coming to Little Haiti, and, I mean, it has been described as it's going to change the landscape of what is considered downtown Little Haiti substantially. What was there? Um, This used to be Magic City Mobile Home Park, and that's something we're seeing all over Miami where mobile home parks are like the next frontier and across the country for development because it's like this... Two, three, four, five acres, um, and if you are able to buy it, you have a substantial amount of space. About a few blocks north of here in the village of El Portal, that mobile home park was also bought out, and that's about to be another big development project as well. So this is going to not look like anything you see here.
2: Miami is culture, an amalgamation of the Caribbean and Latin America.
1: This is a promotional video reel that the Magic City developers produce. What do you
0: notice? What do you see? Well, there's a lot of Haitian stuff happening here. Flags and B-rolls of bands and that kind of thing. Right.
2: A celebration of Haitian and Caribbean culture presented to the world, inspiring others. Immersive. So Magic
1: City, for their part, they're saying, we're here to work with you. We're going to be a part of this community. It's why we have Haitian flags in our promotional video. It's why we've had meetings in the Haitian community. And they've done the type of outreach you're supposed to do, but that has not helped with the fear of displacement, what this big project is going to mean for the neighborhood. Mm. And while there are some supporters, there are a lot more visible critics.
0: And what does that look like? Like, where do these critics show
1: up? So I went to one of those meetings on a weekday, it was like the early evening hours, and it happened in Little Haiti, where Magic City developers were talking to people about the benefits of the project. The church was packed. Easily 200 people were there. And this meeting was held at a church called Notre Dame d'Aiti Catholic Church. There's a good chance if you're from Miami and you're of Haitian descent, you've been to this church even if you're not Catholic for a wedding, an immigration rights protest.
0: It's like a community town hall.
1: Exactly. And one of the spokesmen for Magic City was standing on a stage and he was talking to a Haitian homeowner who raised concerns about the project.
0: It will also create... Job opportunities and training for your children and others in your family.
1: People weren't buying it. They called them colonizers. They said they were coming into the community to take over. Magic City did say, look, we're coming in to make this neighborhood better. We're going to improve what's already here. The sidewalks will be better, there'll be more parks. But people still had a lot of concerns. Michel Biennemé is a homeowner in Little Haiti. He spoke in Creole. Biennemé accused Magic City of pushing Haitians out and said he doesn't believe any of the changes will benefit the current residents of Little Haiti. But other people say something's got to change.
2: There is no money here.
1: Mimi Sanon-Jules has had her own business
2: here for about 10 years. The neighborhood is dead. There is nothing going on. Most of the buildings closed. She now has a small booth at the Caribbean
1: marketplace the city created to support local vendors, where she's a designer and reseller of vintage finds.
2: I'm a vintage lady. I love old, authentic. I like stuff who represents me as a black woman. And we have a lot of nice pieces here from Haiti. And Mimi has her own vision
1: for the next step she loves to cook vegetarian dishes with a Haitian flair, but she can't cook at the marketplace.
2: I'm going to open if Mimi's vegan, um, Bite. I don't know if it's going to be one year or two, but for sure, soon. The way I want to do my store, we're going to show you the flavor, the style, the love. You will enjoy it. It's going to be my hand. <laughs> Made by me.
1: (laughs) This is where gentrification is complicated. Mimi used to have a 2,500 square foot storefront. You can still see it. It's sitting empty across the street from the marketplace.
2: Everybody loves it. When we serve people, we serve them with love. It's not all about money. But she got priced out. I miss my store.
1: Two years ago, her landlord nearly doubled her rent. A few blocks north, a dozen Haitian owned businesses also had to relocate they couldn't afford the new rents and left the neighborhood altogether. That's the displacement many fear with Magic City. But Mimi hopes the new development will offer another chance to make it.
2: A lot of Haitian people used to have money They don't invest in the community. And this is the problem we have. If it's yours, nobody can come take it from you. But if it's not yours, they can come here anytime and said when it's time for you to move, and you move. And the way Magic City is going to build, I would like to have a spot there. I can have my juice and vegan uh, food there, but I don't know yet. But I would like to, because I love Little Haiti. Little Haiti, it's me, I'm Haitian. You know, I would like to have a spot in Little Haiti, but I don't see the light.
0: So there's clearly a tension here, right, between the need to really invest in Little Haiti, so Mimi has people to buy her vegan bites, and the displacement that investment sets in motion, which is, of course, familiar when we talk about gentrification. So what's Miami's approach to managing this tension? I mean, is there a plan?
1: Kind of. The city is developing a plan. But when you go out into the community and talk to people, the solutions are just not coming fast enough. Because what you have to understand, Kai, is Miami has an urgent affordable housing crisis overall. This is one of the fastest growing cities in the country, and most of the new housing being built is luxury and high end. As a result, the city consistently ranks as one of the least affordable
0: places to live in the country. And projects like Magic City will intensify that trend, right?
1: Um, Magic City is something that's called a special area plan. In Miami, that means if a developer can get at least nine contiguous acres in an area, they can build denser and higher than allowed in the zoning codes. In exchange, they provide public amenities like parks. But what they're building typically in these special area plans are, again, high-end and luxury housing. Initially, Magic City did say that they would include affordable and workforce housing in this plan. But that was scrapped before it was voted on. And instead, they're now contributing $31 million to a community trust. And look, the developers, they hear the pushback. I caught up briefly with one of Magic City's developers after the town hall, Max Sklar.
3: We understand not everyone's always going to be happy. There's going to be pros and cons to everything. But it's always great to hear the response from the community. And we take that to heart.
0: But here's what Max and Magic City aren't really talking about in community meetings. Sea level rise. And the Dez discovered... That was very much on their minds as they looked at Little Haiti. That's next. Sonodej, climate change. I gather you have figured out that this is something very much on the minds of Magic City developers. Right. I'm going to take you through some of the documents they submitted to the city of Miami. Okay.
1: So page three, they lead with a topographic map of the Miami area. Mm -hmm. And a few pages in, it shows that the low-lying areas are coated in blue and high elevation lands are in darker browns. Mm -hmm. And on this map, there are pink arrows that circle where Magic City will be built in Little Haiti on high land.
0: Right. I see. And it's all brown in Little Haiti. Right.
1: Right. This area of town, Little Haiti, and if we go a little west, Liberty City, these predominantly Black neighborhoods in the northern part of the city of Miami sit up on a limestone ridge, which runs north-south through the area. It's also where the railroad was built, and as a result, they're 9 to 10
0: feet above sea level. That's a big deal in Miami. Right, because of sea level rise, right? I mean, because of climate change and flooding from these stronger and stronger hurricanes like the one you guys almost just got hit by.
1: With Hurricane Dorian looming and no one absolutely sure where it will land along the southeast coast, Miami-Dade elected officials saying, be prepared anyway. We're at the height for hurricane season. And the thing is, of the special area plan submitted to the city, Magic City is the only one to mention topography resiliency. I spoke with someone who's been watching the connection between Miami real estate, elevation, and climate change. I see you're everywhere. I see your name everywhere. You're kind of famous now.
3: Yeah. You know, for every laudatory aspects of one's work, there's an equal number of death threats and hate mail. So,
1: Jesse Keenan is a researcher at Harvard's design school, and his work is very well known in Miami's government and local climate advocacy circles. He's the one credited for really putting into focus the idea of what he calls climate gentrification. So the study that you co-authored, it has really gotten a lot of attention here in South Florida. Talk to me a little bit about first, like what led you on this journey of exploring climate gentrification in Miami-Dade County?
3: Well, a number of years ago, really almost seven years ago, I started to think about different manifestations in gentrification that I attributed in part to climate stresses and as well as people's response to that. And my original thinking and work was actually overseas, but all along the way, um, doing work really around the world, I kept coming back to Miami, and I started to think about these conversations I was having, and there were people that were telling me that they were moving from the beach, Miami Beach, and they were moving to the mainland because they thought in the long term that the high elevation on the mainland was something that was a superior economic investment.
1: So Jesse realized that Miami could solve his research problem. He didn't have enough data to really test his theory. But in the Miami area, he had a region where climate change is apparent and a lot of property is bought and sold. So Jesse decided that this was the place to ask, is there a relationship between climate change and gentrification?
3: We found a couple of things. I mean, one, the theory of climate gentrification is different from a classic models of gentrification in the sense that in a classic model of gentrification, it's about supply. But climate gentrification, as I had begun to theorize it over the years, was really also more fundamentally about a shift in not supply, but demand and a change in consumer preferences. Jesse
1: and his team divided Miami-Dade County into parcels and sorted them by elevation. High elevation parcels over here, low elevation parcels over there. Then they tracked how much each parcel was worth over time. And they found low elevation properties were underperforming while high elevation properties were increasing in value.
3: They started to separate from the pack, if you will, that is all other properties, around the year 2000.
1: Why is that That year 2000 significant?
3: That's effectively when the observational studies in climate science started to tell us that in Miami-Dade County, the nuisance flooding started to just become out of control.
1: It's interesting because... As I have been doing reporting around this, um, developers are very hesitant to say that they are taking seriously the concept of climate gentrification or even the impact of climate.
3: Well, I think that that's uh, par for the course for any uh, discourse in climate change, that there's some measure of denialism. We provided evidence of the existence of changing consumer preferences, so you know, time will tell, but as a matter of a, let's say, precautionary principle, let's go ahead and take this seriously. Climate gentrification is going to affect a lot of people in a lot of places.
1: The topography analysis and the plans that Magic City submitted to the city are telling. But you can also see if you scroll through the names of LLCs that have been buying up properties in Little Haiti. One of them is called Premium Elevation LLC. I mentioned this to Jesse. <laughs> what? I'm not kidding are you serious? You. When I found oh that, God. I was just like, this is... Because it speaks to your point that even if you're not saying for sure this is a thing, that people are thinking about this. People are that's
3: thinking about this. That's the most real thing I've heard in a long time.
0: And that's one thing climate change and gentrification share. They're both these wooly ideas that, for some people, are hard to make real can't always clearly define it, point to it and say that. There, that thing is climate change. That thing is gentrification. And still, you know it's happening all around you. As Nadege walked me around Little Haiti, we passed this really striking mural. It was just across the street from the Magic City site, painted up high on the building. And it depicted a man standing with a video camera. And as you look at it, the camera is pointed right at you. It's ominous, honestly. You feel kind of exposed as you stare into the lens. It, it's almost like a protest sign. Like, we know
1: development is coming, but Little Haiti is watching. So in Creole, it's called yo, watch them. That That is that sign. and And it was very intentional because little by little, you've been seeing Little Haiti signs disappear where they used to be, like, welcome to Little Haiti or this is Little Haiti. So that was in direct response to that, that this is Little Haiti. Like, don't. Don't be mistaken.
0: Coming up, we go to a neighborhood where climate gentrification is not at all a new idea. So my grandfather, he always would talk to us, and like, they gonna come steal
1: our communities because it don't flood. Like, I remember him saying this as a young child. Like, that was common
0: knowledge in Liberty City for many years. That's next on The Stakes. Stakes is a production of WNYC Studios and the newsroom of WNYC. This episode was produced in partnership with WLRN in Miami. It was reported and produced by Nadezh Green, Christopher Johnson, and myself. It was edited by Karen Frillman, who is also our executive producer, and Alicia Zuckerman, who is editorial director for WLRN. Casey Means is our technical director. The Stakes team also includes Jenny Casas
2: Marianne McHugh, John Johnna
0: McCone, Jessica Miller, Kari Pitkin, Christopher Worth, and Marilyn Williams. With help from Hannes Brown, Michelle Harris, Kim Nawaki, and Jared Paul. Stay in touch. You can hit me up on Twitter at Kai underscore Thanks for listening.